This season of Truck Safe Live is presented by LogRock. LogRock builds technology tools to help trucking companies stay compliant with federal and state regulations. LogRock is easier. We connect to multiple systems like your FMCSA account and ELD, so you only have to use one system. LogRock is faster. We automate tedious tasks so you can use your time more effectively. LogRock is smarter. We notify you of issues like expiring or missing documents before they happen so you can be proactive rather than reactive. Setup is easy and most of our customers are online shortly after signing up. Request a demo now at LogRock.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 15 of Truck Safe Live, the monthly show where we and our guests tackle the hot button issues impacting highway transportation. I'm Brandon, Truck Safe and Childress Law, both of which are dedicated to helping motor carriers develop and maintain cutting edge safety programs. Uh, today's show, we're talking about the anatomy of a commercial motor vehicle accident. Um, pretty popular topic, judging by uh, the comments and uh, and the viewers that we've got thus far. Um, it's it's an important one, obviously, but it's uh, it's one that nobody really wants to think about until uh, until it happens. But we have to think about it because there are a lot of things involved. There are a lot of things to think about that you really need to get a handle on before it actually happens so that you're not scrambling when the time comes. So that's what we're going to break down in this show. I'm excited to uh, to bring on some guests to talk about it with us. Uh, before we do that, just wanted to hit on some things that are going on in the industry and at TruckSafe um, before we get to the main topic. Also, if you're here with us live, uh, say hey in the comments. Uh, and certainly as we go along, if you have any questions or thoughts on the topic, feel free to drop them into the con uh, into the uh, into the comments and we'll get to them as we go. All right. So in terms of things going on in the industry, uh, FMCSA specifically, um, you've probably heard by now the uh, the uh, U.S. Senate has confirmed finally Robin Hutchinson as the next next administrator for the FMCSA. It's been a long time in the making. She served as deputy administrator uh, for the last several months. And finally, Senate confirmed her as the official administrator of FMCSA. First time in, I think, four years um, that we've had an actual administrator for the agency, which hopefully will um, uh, hopefully will uh, bring some stability. Um, and we've kind of already seen that. So we uh, we have. Um, seen a lot of regulatory developments even over the last couple of months or so. Um, and so I think we'll continue to see that here with, uh, with Hutchinson recently confirmed. So, uh, also in terms of recent regulatory developments, just yesterday, uh, November 16th, uh, FMCSA published a, what it's calling interim guidance. Uh, it occasionally does this. So aside from its rulemaking activity that it does, it also uh, occasionally weighs in with what it calls guidance on certain topics, which it says does, doesn't have the force and effect of law. It's just the agency kind of giving its interpretation of how it views uh, certain regulations or statutes. It did that yesterday uh, on the issue of brokers, uh, property brokers. So um, we've done a couple of shows 
shows on this topic. The agency back in June published uh, a request for comments out to the public requesting um, public input on whether the definitions, the regulatory definitions of broker and bona fide agents um, are, are clear enough and whether the agency needs to step in and weigh in on, um, on so-called dispatch services and whether in certain situations dispatch services need to get broker authority or not. And so public weighed in, there were several comments submitted. And so the agency uh, viewed those comments and then came out with the guidance that it published yesterday. Um, essentially where it lands, we did a whole article on this um, on our website. If you want to check that out, uh, do so. We, we kind of um, broke, broke down the guidance in detail, but essentially um, the agency is clarifying the various factors that weigh in favor of dispatch services, either requiring broker authority or not. Uh, it's, essentially, it comes down to two things. Um, are those dispatch services handling financial aspects of the transactions um, that they're dealing with between shippers and, and the motor carriers that they represent? And are they allocating freight between two or more carriers as opposed to just working for a single carrier? If those two things are present, then according to the FMCSA's guidance, it's going to be more like than not that those are actually brokers uh, and, and require broker authority, which, you know, frankly, um, it doesn't take much to get broker authority. You got to have a $75,000 bond and you got to file an application with the agency. But other than that, um, it, it's, it's not that big of a deal to get broker authority. So I don't know why it's been um, such an issue in the past, but it has been. So agency weighing in on it here. Um, what else is going on? So um, the the FMCSA also issued some regulatory guidance on passenger carrier operations and the applicability of various components of their regulations to those types of operations. Um, namely things like operating authority when is passenger carrier operating authority required when is uh when and at what levels of insurance do those types of operations have to have and then also applicability of of the safety regulations it was a pretty lengthy guide i think it was 56 pages or so of guidance uh, getting into the nitty-gritty of like uh what is interstate commerce when is a passenger carrier involved in interstate commerce and not it gave several examples uh, especially kind of a, around the idea of passenger carriers meeting passengers at an airport that had just flown in from out of state and then moving those passengers to places within the same state and whether that qualifies as interstate commerce. So pretty interesting guidance. We're going to put an article out about that uh, here in the near future. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, so that's kind of the industry news. Um, got a couple of things going on at TruckSafe. Um, if you haven't already checked it out, be sure to check out the TruckSafe Compliance Network uh, at TruckSafeNetwork.com. We also have an app here we're showing uh, in the App Store and also the Google Play Store. Uh, this is a social network that we developed for um, safety professionals, motor carrier uh owners, safety directors, safety managers, risk advisors, those types of folks to, to really be able to network with one another and to learn from one another. Um, and so we've got the network and then also through the network, we, we provide a lot of network exclusive content. So we're doing monthly webinars on compliance related topics. So be sure you check it out. Uh, again, trucksafenetwork.com. It's free to join. Um, so so uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Um, the other thing I'll mention before we 
uh, turn to the topic of today is our fleet compliance boot camp. Um, this is uh, we're, we're excited to uh, to have coming up our first ever truck safe compliance boot camp next April in downtown Indianapolis. This is going to be an immersive two day in person conference. Uh, again, for trucking company owners, safety professionals, risk advisors to really gather together and learn uh, what it takes to develop and maintain cutting edge safety and compliance programs. Uh, we think it's going to be a one of a kind opportunity for, for fleet safety folks to network and learn from industry experts. We're going to have a lot of guests come in and, and give presentations and, uh, and really work to develop your compliance program. We're going to limit registration to 25 individuals so we can devote more time to working to understand and helping um, helping the attendees really improve their compliance program specifically. So if you're interested, seats are going to fill up fast, I think. Um, so be sure to register. We're actually doing a, um, uh, a promotion um, through the end of November. So if you're interested, be sure to uh, type in the coupon code TruckSafeLive. If you go and, and register, uh, it's TruckSafeBootCamp.com. Uh, if you type in TruckSafeLive coupon code, you'll get 20% off the registration. So hope to see you guys there. Again, that's TruckSafeBootCamp.com. Uh, okay, so enough about us, enough about what's going on in the industry. Let's turn to the topic of today. So, all right. So as I said, uh, today we're going to break down the anatomy of a commercial motor vehicle accident. According to data from FMCSA, the number of fatality accidents involving a large truck or bus actually decreased by 34% from 2005 through 2019. Um, uh, 2005 through 2009. Sorry for that. But then after 2009, uh, we've actually seen a, a um, 47% increase from 2009 through 2019 in those types of accidents. Again, those involving a fatality. And according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, preliminary data from 2021 shows that we're going to have another 13% uh, increase from 2020 to 2021 in those accidents. So trending in the wrong direction. Obviously, uh, these accidents are contributing to huge upticks in lawsuits and resulting in, in big settlements and multi-million dollar verdicts. Uh, the American Transportation Research Institute reports average verdict sizes are up over 50% over the past decade, and the number of verdicts in excess of $10 million continues to rise. So this in turn is causing a lot of problems, uh, primarily increased insurance premiums for motor carriers. So there are, are certainly big stakes here. No one wants to think about these things, as I said earlier, unfortunately, until until it's uh, until it's upon them. Um, but that's what we wanted to spend today doing is really kind of breaking it down and what fleets and drivers really need to be thinking about when they're involved in these accidents to get ahead of the game here. Uh, and, and so you're not scrambling to find answers after the fact. So I'm excited to be joined today by a couple of folks who are very, uh, very deeply involved in this topic. First up is Jess Stenzel with Payne West Insurance. And the second is Brendan Morse, uh, Vice President and Director of Accident Reconstruction for ARCCA. So welcome, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having, Thanks for having us on, Brandon. Hey, no worries. Really appreciate you joining us. Um, before we get started, wanted to uh, do some introductions here. Maybe give us a, uh, an idea of uh, who you are, who you work for, and, and how you got involved in the industry. So, Jess, you want to kick us off? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm Jess Stenzel. I'm from Great Falls, Montana. I work with uh, Payne West Insurance in the transportation specialty practice. So started out uh, in the oil and gas industry, got a petroleum 
engineering degree from uh, Montana Tech and enjoyed the work, but was looking for, uh, you know, more of an advisement role with clients. So uh, made the switch to, uh, to insurance and then uh, really got involved in the trucking space and, and realized all the issues that uh, the carriers are forced with around uh, compliance, safety, and uh, how integrated those issues are with their insurance programs. So feel very fortunate to be surrounded by a, by a strong team and then, uh, you know, a, a good agency where we can uh, deploy resources to help carriers um, drive their safety culture and, uh, and uh, improve their performance as well. So, Excellent. Well, thanks for being with us again. Brandon? Yeah, my name is Brendan Morris, obviously. I have been in this industry for 12 years now. I started as an undergraduate in mechanical engineering at Kettering University, did accident reconstruction, actually told myself I was never going to do it for career, didn't, <laughs> didn't like it at the time. I uh, went on to graduate school for biomedical engineering and biomechanics specifically, and ultimately just fell into this job. My advisor, uh, my, my boss now, or the CEO of the company, uh, had the same advisor that I did in grad school, and I kind of fell into this. And I've, you know, enjoyed it and stuck with it for the last 12 years now. Excellent. Somebody's dog's not happy. Uh, that. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, okay. So again, as you heard at the start today, we're talking about CMV accidents, commercial motor vehicle accidents, and the things that fleets and drivers should be doing immediately following those accidents. To that point, I wanted to first ask you both if there's some kind of a, a threshold you all use for accident seriousness that kind of changes your recommended approach. Um, in other words, are, are there different levels of seriousness that warrant different action? I assume there is. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on it. Jess, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I think that definitely there's a different levels of seriousness to each accident, and each each accident is unique. Each accident is different. I think uh, the biggest thing you can do is just evaluate what's going on at hand. Where right now we've got winter conditions, icy roads in Montana. So if you've got a truck and trailer jackknifed across two lanes of interstate, then uh, first thing you're going to want to do is get the highway patrol on the scene and get the get the scene secured where otherwise if you're let's say you're a hazmat hauler and you're you're hauling uh, a tanker trailer that uh, is upset and overturned and there's potential spill is gonna is gonna warrant different actions as far as people you need to call and and steps that need to be taken to where you're you're taking the right steps to address the situation at hand and I think really uh, it's important for for drivers and and uh, carriers to work with their drivers to have some level of uh, preparation uh, where when they do go through the trauma of being involved in an accident that they've got uh, got some training that they can rely on and they're not just trying to think on their toes and 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 shoot from the hip going through the situation and and how to properly respond yeah, Brendan, same question to you. Are there different levels of, of accidents? You know, I, I can imagine that it's going to be the more serious ones where you all get called in. That's correct. Usually it's more serious, but I mean, we've been involved on ones that you would probably define as less serious as well. But from our perspective, we're looking for the same thing. We want as much evidence and as much data from all levels of incident, um, you know, whether that's photographs or whatever it may be. We we treat it as we want every piece of data that we can get uh, to evaluate it. And I think that's a trick, at least in my experience. I'm, you never really know when a particular accident is going to explode into something 
bigger. I've seen, uh, personally been involved in accidents where it, it looked like there was v- virtually no damage to the to the involved vehicles whatsoever. And then that case, uh, you know, just explodes into a, a potential multi-million dollar case because of the injuries involved. So uh, do, you all, do you all have any advice on, on uh, what we should be doing? So I, I guess the question is, you know, and Jess kind of get into this, but got into this a little bit, but, you know, drivers involved in an accident, we don't necessarily know how serious it is at this moment. What's the very first step that the uh, driver and then his or her employer need to start thinking about once uh, once that happens? So, like I said, I would, uh, I think the most important step is to definitely secure the accident. And it's, whether you get involved in a fender bender is going to be different than if you're involved in, you know, in a, in a high speed accident with multiple vehicles, but, but getting as much information on it as, as soon as you can and communicating that, uh, that plan through your safety director and your drivers where everybody's on the same page as far as the, the next steps that need to be taken and, and the information that's going to be important in, uh, the, the details of the accident where you're not left, uh, you know, days or weeks down the road trying to trying to gather evidence and build a defensible file. But you, you have good policies and procedures in place that, uh, you know, one thing is an accident reporting form is the best thing that every driver should have in the cab of the truck that's going to guide the driver through basic details of the accident and basic details that need, they need to collect. Uh, another really important thing that uh, that is picking up and getting a lot of steam in the industry is dash cams which can be the, the best form of evidence that you can that you can use to defend yourself and really get down to the facts of actually what happened in the accident. Yeah, I th- and you mentioned the kind of the accident checklist in the cab. I think that's critically important because I've seen it come up. You know, if a driver gets involved in an accident, sometimes they're they're in shock from that accident. They don't know what to do. Exactly. And if you can, you know, ease the burden on them as, as much as you can in that situation, give them a step-by-step here's, here's the things to follow. I think that's the best thing to do. I think in our, when we published this show, we had some commenters say that they're starting to, uh, print these out on a sticker that then they can put in the, in the visor in the trucks to make it even that much easier for drivers to understand exactly what they need to do when this time comes. Brendan, do you have any thoughts on kind of first steps for drivers and for their employers? Yeah, I agree with the having a checklist. I mean, no matter how serious the incident is, if you're in a parking lot or if you're on the highway going 60, you want to go through those same steps just to make it repeatable, make it make sure you've checked your boxes. From my perspective, if I could in every ideal situation, it would be to pull the parking brake, turn the ignition off, pull the keys out of the truck. Um, that saves any electronic data that could be on that truck at that time. And then obviously report it to the office or if you're owner operator, report it to whatever entities you need to. If you have the dash cam, get that data immediately if it's streaming to a cloud or wherever it's going. Um, just get it done, get it collected ASAP. Yeah, Brennan's asking, uh, or he's he's asking about an accident reporting form. I think Jess had mentioned it. Um, Jess, is there a particular form you have in mind, or is that kind of the checklist we're talking about? Exactly, an accident checklist going through the who, what, where, when, why of the accident. You know, like you said, 
involved in an accident, your, your adrenaline's running, you're, you're stressed out, and it can be easy to miss details. So having some form of structure that you can fall back on as far as gathering the, the details that are going to make the biggest difference in the yeah. claim. Yeah, I know from a DOT compliance side of things, the DOT um, does not require motor carriers or their drivers to actually report any accidents. Some states may have that requirement. I know there are certain states that say if you're involved in a commercial vehicle accident uh, that uh, usually it's going to be the fatality accidents, then those have to be reported. And then uh, I think Brendan had mentioned earlier, hazmat carriers, they have different obligations of when they have to actually report uh, certain spills and, and unintentional releases and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I think um, in terms of an actual checklist uh, of things to do, I think that's kind of the key there. Um, Jess, kind of looking at this from an insurance perspective, when in the process uh, after the accident, would you like your insured carriers to notify you about the accident uh as soon as possible honestly it's we've gone through both ways where if you get a timely report a claim and not only just having an accident checklist in the jockey box that you hand out to each driver but giving it and then let's say you have a monthly safety meeting where you run through some hypotheticals and it's it's different when you actually can walk through the checklist and see why each bit of required information or bit of information is uh, is important versus having to get all dusty in the jockey box. And then two years later, you're trying to break it out and make sense of it. So, But uh, we want to be notified as soon as possible. The, the, the quicker you can start the claim investigation process and begin gathering details and gather as much information as possible is, is the best thing you can do to, to protect yourself versus your five or six days down the road and essentially the you know, people have scattered from the scene of the incident and you're trying to put together statements and details of the incident, which is which is much tougher than getting it done up front. Yeah. So what is the information that you're going to um, you're going to need? What's the basic information that you're going to need from uh, from the carrier, from your insured when they call and, and notify you of an accident? So definitely the driver involved, you know, the vehicle involved, trailer involved, uh, which direction you were headed, which you know, which road you were on. Uh, if you can get pictures of the accident, I don't think you can take too many pictures and it doesn't need to be necessarily close up pictures of the damage, but if you can get pictures of, you know, which of where the accident happened, which way you were coming, which way the, the other involved vehicle was, was coming, any applicable road signs, um, get a police report, get the police report number, as, as much information as you can get in that, in that first report. Tom is asking, is the checklist more specific uh, based on the type of carrier tank versus flatbed? Brendan, do you have any thoughts on, are there different things that you uh, would would recommend to carriers based on their type of operation that they include in that checklist of things to do immediately after an accident? For myself and what I'm looking for, no, I wouldn't. I would just it, everything, document everything that you possibly can. Like Jess was saying um, about photographs, digital memory is fairly cheap these days. Cell phones are pretty good. Um, focusing on the damage just to the truck or just to maybe the other vehicle without stepping back, Ste take 20 steps back and capture all that. Um, but as far as the checklist, no, I would just document everything. Uh, even whether it's a tank or a flatbed, I, I want to know what the brakes are like. I want to know what the retroreflective tape was or all the setups on any, just the same. Yeah, I've heard. Too, um, go ahead, go ahead. 
No, good. Well, I was going to say on Tom's question that uh, you can get a base checklist that's that's very genetic that has uh, a lot of the things that we talked about as far as who was involved, you know, the plates of the other vehicle involved, your truck and trailer. But you could take a checklist and, and review it with your team and make it more specific to to your operations. That way, it uh, it's geared more towards uh, you know gathering the right details that are specific to to whatever you're doing. Yeah, Mike's ask, asking a good question here, and this is what I was going to mention. You know, what caution can you provide regarding your photos? You know, I've heard I've heard mixed things about uh, photogra- uh, you know, photographs of the scene and how specific you should get with those photos and showing injuries and, and potentially fatalities and how close up to get with the details and stuff like that. I think the consensus overall, at least on the litigation side of things is that photos are good, but then I think the, the, you know, thoughts start to diverge when you talk about what type of detail you want in those photos. So do you all have any thoughts on that in terms of, are, are there any, uh, words of caution to motor carriers? and their drivers when it comes to taking photographs of the scene Uh, lost lost Jess go ahead Brendan yeah from my perspective I don't really think so because I mostly want to know where the vehicles ended up what's the final rest location what does that damage look like that day of in case there's something that changes because the vehicles are towed or or anything that happens in transit um I don't know that there's anything necessarily detrimental. Also, in a lot of these cases, if it's a higher severity, the law enforcement is going to have photographs as well or video as well, uh, especially in this day and age that it'll come out to some degree anyway. Um, yeah. Jess, do you have any thoughts on that kind of words of caution about the photographs taken at the scene? Yeah, I think that uh, be careful with your photos as far as pictures of any injuries or whatnot, you're going to want to steer away from that. But uh, so long as you're taking pictures of, you know, equipment, uh, location, whatnot, um, you know, I think you're good. Yeah. So the interesting thing about photo, another interesting thing um, about photographs, I, we did a show early on uh, on Truck Safe Live about the the uptick in nuclear verdicts and uh, about um, various states starting to look at tort reform to try and uh, to try and kind of curb these nuclear verdicts. And we talked with John Esparza from the Texas Trucking Association, who at the time we did the show was in the midst of trying to get their uh, uh, House Bill 19. Is that right? House Bill 19 passed, which would uh, which was eventually passed and made some significant changes in the state of Texas. One of which, and I didn't realize that this was the case, and, and apparently it's the case in, in other states, um, state courts wouldn't even allow for the admissibility of certain accident scene photographs. And so one of the things that, that Texas did in that tort reform was to allow for the introduction of those photos, because what we were having is, you know, the motor carrier would have photograph evidence that would suggest if I'm a jury member looking at the photograph, you could see the relative, um, you know, I don't want to say that it wasn't, a, I guess I would say relative, um, seriousness of the accident. So you may see a photograph where the damage to the truck and to the passenger vehicle didn't look that substantial, even though the the plaintiff is claiming injuries. And so that wasn't admissible in Texas, but now with the house bill 19 that has changed. So I thought that was something interesting. Uh, we've got a lot of comments here. Let's see what else we've got. Brendan says, but it's not my fault. Why do I need to report it to Jess? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, there's definitely been uh, some not at fault accidents that have still 
resulted in some pretty significant damages. So I think you're better off always to report it and uh, and have documentation of the claim. And then as you learn the details of it, you know, it, it will iron out rather than you fail to report a claim and find out weeks or months later that uh, the other involved vehicle is has already retained an attorney and is going to going to pursue litigation. It's crazy. We've seen some of these cases, uh, some of these nuclear verdict cases, which end up with multi-million dollar jury verdicts against the trucking company in cases where it very clearly wasn't even the driver's fault. There's nothing the driver could have done to to have prevented the accident. And yet the trucking company gets tagged with a multi-million dollar verdict. So I think for that reason alone, to your point, Jess, it's important that uh, you get in early contact with your insurance uh, company to make them aware because they're going to want to take steps to best protect you uh, in the context of the, of that accident. Brendan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, if you don't consider it your fault, you're probably getting rid of evidence immediately. You're not going to take photographs. You're going to lose any electronic data. You might not save a dash camera video, all of which may just 100% have proved that you were in the right. Um, so I wouldn't dismiss it just on your own. Just still collect that data, but maybe you file it away where it's saved and you think about it less than you would as a more major incident. Yeah. And putting aside insurance, you know, from a DOT perspective, kind of the world I live in, you know, historically DOT hasn't really cared whether it was your driver's fault or not. If your driver was involved in a DOT recordable accident, whether it was his fault or not, it still impacted your scores as a motor carrier, it still influenced your, your crash indicator score. It still influenced your, uh, your accident rate. But now more recently, DOT FMCSA has come out with its crash preventability demonstration program where carriers can actually go in and, and challenge the preventability of the accident. And so to your guys's point, you know, if, if we don't take steps immediately after the accident to preserve the evidence that we need to prove that our driver wasn't at fault, then we really have no chance at getting those, you know, again, from a DOT perspective, getting those taken off our score. So it's, it's important for a number of reasons, obviously. Tom here is asking, what are your thoughts on collecting exoneration cards at the scene of the accident? Jess, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, exoneration cards? Yeah, I assume what Tom is mentioning uh, is is some kind of um, statements, uh, maybe from the other party, saying, "Hey, it, you know, I, it was my fault that this accident happened," or something to that effect. I think, uh, yeah, as much as much other you know witness statements that you can get, and uh, I don't think that it'll hurt. As far as as the driver, I would refrain from uh, from signing anything unless it's reviewed with your attorney. But uh, but an exoneration card, if you have somebody who's willing to admit fault on it and provide a, a written testimony of that, I don't I don't see a problem with that. Brendan, any thoughts on that? I'm usually getting it later in the process than than Jess is, obviously. Yeah. So any any description that I can get is is great though, because when you're at the scene. Obviously, it's the most fresh, and you're writing it down. You're maybe still looking at the vehicles. You're still looking at everything that happened. Uh, so that's great for me to have the, that detail because sometimes extra details come out of things like that right there, right there. Yeah. 
I mean, from the litigation standpoint, I'm not a litigator, um, so I'm probably the worst lawyer in the world to be asking this question. But uh, um, I can envision that, you know, if you certainly if you can get somebody to make an admission uh, at the scene of the accident, you're going to be better off for it. But I don't know that I you would you could rely on that. Certainly, I, again, this kind of goes back to the issue with you've just been involved in a serious accident. Maybe you're in shock. Maybe you're not even thinking straight. So, you know, there's a, I could I can envision a potential argument by plaintiffs attorney in that case that, hey, my client signed and said that it was their fault, but they weren't thinking straight because they just, you know, it was trauma at that point. So, you know, I, again, I to, to your guys' point, I think getting witness statements is, is important. If you get somebody to admit to it being their fault, then, well, then, you know, you're better off for it, but certainly uh, probably not re- all that reliable. Steve says, as a checklist item number one, I recommend getting the truck and trailer completely off the traveled portion of the roadway to avoid second accidents. Yeah, this is something I wanted to ask you guys about because I've heard mixed things about this as well. Do we move the vehicle as soon as it happens, uh, as soon as the ap- accident happens so that we can avoid these types of, of secondary accidents? Brendan, go for it. As far as the data goes, like I said earlier, I would say, no, I don't want to, but I understand the circumstances that require it. Um, the quicker you can set the parking brake, turn the ignition off, pull the key, the better opportunity you have for more data. Uh, that may be changing in the future. That is currently where we're at. Uh, this industry is consolidating when it comes to accident data. It appears like the passenger vehicle industry did uh, in the mid to late 2000s. So um, I understand it. I understand why you want to get them off the road and law enforcement may require it. Uh, but in some instances, you may be overriding or erasing data by doing so. Are, so to make sure I've got that straight, would you be more comfortable with them moving the vehicle if they've taken first taken those steps that you've mentioned, which are to set the parking brake, turn off the ignition, and then if, if they need to move it, then they can do that. Do you get better data if they follow that process before they then just move the vehicle off the off to the side? Yeah, I mean, if it's towed off to the side of the road, absolutely. When that ignition's turned off, it's not recording anything. It doesn't okay. have power to do so. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially frozen everything uh, okay. for last stop data specifically is what, what I'm referring to. Okay. Um, so if the, if the driver then turns it back on, then it doesn't really help you at that point. Exactly. We see tow truck companies, law enforcement, uh, whoever trying to just check on, you know, the truck doesn't have power. Can I move it? And it'll erase that data. Yeah. Jess, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I was going to say the same as far as from uh, from Brendan's point of view, you'd be better off to leave the scene as it was. But obviously, if there's still still traffic trying to move by or, uh, you know, like we said earlier, if it's if it's icy and it's whiteout conditions and you're you're sideways in the middle of the road, try to get get off to the side and get in a, in a safer position where you're not going to cause, you know, further accidents or further uh, injuries. Yeah, Rob says, I'm, I'm historically collected exoneration cards, but I've always stressed to my drivers that if it's your fault, it's your fault. Don't sign anything acknowledging that, but don't get that exoneration card out. I think that's right. I, um, you know, a, a lot of a common sense goes a long way here. Um, signing something that says it was my fault is probably never a good idea. Um, so, yeah, I would avoid that. Um, let's see here. Daniel's saying we have an issue with the post-accident drug testing, especially the um, the the bat, the uh, blood alcohol test and getting test in required time frames, two to eight hours. 
because many test facilities don't do that type of test. So this is something we haven't even really got into, but the kind of the DOT obligations post-accident, um, namely drug and alcohol testing. So, um, you know, Jess, do you have any thoughts on kind of dealing with that issue where, hey, our, we have a CDL driver who's been involved in, a, in an accident that requires post-accident yeah. testing, but we're having trouble getting somebody out to test them? Yeah. So first of all, there's three legal reasons for a for a DOT drug and alcohol test, and the way I remember it is nurse, hearse, and tow. So nurse, if uh, if anybody is uh, medically transported away from the scene of the accident, and the driver was cited, it's uh, subject to a DOT drug and alcohol test. Hearse, if there was a fatality, uh, regardless of citation to the driver, requires a drug and alcohol test, and then a tow away with. Uh, with a citation issued to the driver has a, a requirement for drug and alcohol test as well. So uh, I know you do, you got that eight hours for, uh, for the alcohol test and 32 hours for the drug test, which if you're tied down at the scene of the accident, I know that can be tough to do, whether they'll administer a BAC on location, but for the drug test, I just know if, if you're unable to, uh, to get your test done, in those uh, time frames that you gotta you gotta document every two hours reasons why until essentially if you if you make it past that eight hours then the the reason for the test is yeah is thrown out. Yeah, this is a problem for virtually every motor carrier I've ever worked with. Uh, we go in and we do mock DOT audits where we're looking at all of the same things the DOT would look at in the context of a real audit. And this is one of them. Are you doing your post-accident testing as required by the regulations, meaning within the required timeframes? As you said, Jess, fortunately, the regulations give us uh, instructions on what to do when this happens, when we are unable to uh, get the drivers tested within those regulatory timeframes. And they say exactly what you said, which is um, you have to document exactly why it was that you weren't able to get the drivers tested within those required timeframes. The problem is, and I've seen this come up in real audits where, you know, you may have done that. You may have documented exactly why you couldn't get the test done within those timeframes. Maybe your driver didn't let you know that he or she was cited in one of those two instances that require a citation uh, until after the timeframes have passed, or maybe you, you're out in the middle of nowhere, you can't get them to a testing site within those required timeframes, and the carrier goes ahead and prepares a, a detailed note and puts it in the file as to why that was the case, and the DOT still writes them up for missing the required test. I've always taken the position that that's too aggressive of a, an interpretation of the regulations and that the motor carrier has satisfied its obligations by documenting why they couldn't get the test done within the required timeframes. We've made that argument in a couple of appeals uh, when it impacts the motor carrier's safety rating, um, but uh, it, it can be a problem if you've got an aggressive auditor, um, despite your what appears to be you following the regulations. Uh, Brendan here is saying, does a law enforcement alcohol test qualify? for DOT. So I think it does, Brendan. Um, I think the regulations um, say that if you can't get your test done within the required time frame, you can rely on a test administered by law enforcement. Don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm fairly certain that's the case. Uh, Jess, do you have any idea on that one? I've heard, I've heard similar. Uh, I've also heard that there's, you know, using the law enforcement test could be subject to uh, some HIPAA violations. I'm not absolutely confident on either way though. So, um, 
I'm going to look that up, but uh, while I do so, Brendan, I got a question for you. So in terms of accident reconstruction, when is that necessary in your view? Um, can you kind of give us a feel for when, when you should be called in to kind of, kind of do that analysis? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anytime you want to know the answers as far as uh, how fast the vehicle is going, you know, uh, to collect the data, obviously in a major accident, the quicker I can get there, the quicker I can give answers and it all starts with if you have a case send me the VIN number right away VIN number of the truck uh, especially if it's a heavy truck that's what dictates what type of data I might be able to help you with it's not the label or the badge on the truck it's the internals what's the engine what is inside that truck and then I can give you an interpretation of what data we might get how important that's going to be for your specific case if you can give me some photos or a news article or something that tells us uh, what's going on. So, I mean, I get involved in everything where people think they have absolutely no fault and they want me to just collect the data in case something comes up later to the point of, you know, we have five vehicles in a fatality on the highway. I can always collect data, always collect evidence and just use it later if it needs to be used. So Brendan, what's that process like when you first get notified of an accident, kind of walk us through what happens from that point? Sure. Um, sometimes I'm notified day of. I've had that before where I'm getting out of work and driving to a, a scene right away to collect all the evidence that I can. And then sometimes it could even be a year later. Those ones are much more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, typically with the heavy vehicles, semi-trucks, uh, trailers, not the box trucks as much because they kind of fall into um, the mid-class, class four or five vehicles. Um, I'm involved within a week or two. And so I collect that data. I, I want seen evidence. I'll wait and get all the police documents as much as I can for evidence there. Um, maybe other vehicles, I'll access event data recorders or there if it's another semi truck, access that. Put that all together and then I'll discuss it with the client. Hey, this is where things are. And then from there, you know, if it goes to settlement, if it goes to mediation or, or to trial, from there, you can create animations. You could uh, issue a full report. Just depends on what is needed for that specific case. Yeah, so uh, I was going to ask what, kind of what's the end, end product look like? So it sounds like it can differ depending on what the client's looking for. Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes it's just a simple verbal of this is what we got for data. This is where we're at. This is your position. Um, sometimes it's immediately, okay, I want that, but I want a report stating all that, laying it all out for me. And then if we're going to trial from there, we can create animations with perspectives and use that data. Maybe it's, you know, dash camera data or, or data from the engine control module, whatever it might be, um, to apply that. All right. I've got the answer to the question posed a minute ago. Let me bring this up. Uh, so here's the regulation in terms of whether a, um, a law enforcement test can be used to satisfy motor carriers post-accident testing obligations. It says the result of a blood or breath test for the use of alcohol conducted by federal, state, or local law enforcement or public safety officials having independent authority for the test shall be considered to meet the requirements of this section, provided such tests conform to applicable testing requirements and that the results of the test are obtained by the employer. So there's your answer. Um, if law enforcement conducts the test, then the motor carrier can use that test to satisfy its post-accident testing obligations, assuming you get a copy of it. Um, 
couple other questions came in here. Tom's asking, how about DOT accident reports and SMS that say unknown for driver citation issued? Uh, is that ever problematic if litigated? It's problematic for uh, a couple of reasons, including the post-accident drug testing. I've seen this come up with a lot of our carrier clients where uh, it's not clear whether the driver was cited or not. And maybe the driver's not telling you whether they received a citation and you log into SMS and it says unknown. And so now you're left in kind of a limbo where you're not sure whether drug and alcohol testing was required because, uh, as Jess mentioned, that's a component of two of the accident types. And so, you, you know, the the thing you're up against as a motor carrier is it's a violation if you conduct these tests when you're not supposed to conduct the test. And it's a violation okay. if you don't conduct the test when, when it's required. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. And so, uh, yeah, the fact that we don't have uh, the information that we need to make that call is frustrating. And then certainly if it's litigated, um, hopefully by the time it's litigated, you're, you're going to know whether the driver was cited or not through the discovery process and stuff like that. But I, it certainly could be an issue. Uh, uh, let's see here. Several other questions. Is there a correlation between the time a claim stays open and the ultimate cost of the claim? Jess, you want to take that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say definitely just in terms of you want to get it closed out as quick as possible, uh, just even in defense costs, where if you got a claim that's that's open, you know, it's, it's being drawn out, there's, there's more uh, resources and investment being made into that claim that, yeah, it's ultimately going to have an impact on, uh, on the total claim value. So another reason why it's important to to gather as much information as you can, try to try to nurture it along and get it closed out as soon as possible. Brendan, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, once I collect the information, I'm just letting it sit. So um, the longer it goes, obviously, we just hold the data from our perspective. So it doesn't add cost for us to do any additional analysis later. Uh, as long as we've got the front end of collecting the scene evidence properly and collected the you know the vehicle evidence and the, whatever data comes with that it doesn't add a cost for for us so i had a curious uh question come up that and i'm wondering if if you all have had any experience with this you know what what shouldn't drivers do at the scene of the accident have you all ever seen any kind of crazy things that drivers have done that you uh wished had not had happened leave don't leave don't panic um yeah I mean, there's we, co we covered a lot of the basics, and I think those are really the important uh, must to to appropriately handling what to do after the scene of an accident. But um, uh, I would say be courteous. You know, just uh, once emergency personnel show up, uh, you know, be courteous to them, be respectful. Brendan, yeah, I would say it's you know similar along those lines. Um, just it's an accident you know, or a traumatic event for people. So responses might be, you know, different depending on who you are and how you react to those things. But uh, if you have to move the vehicles, I mean, you have to some cases, you know, like we said, the weather not causing other incidents, maybe law enforcement moves it. But other than that, uh, try and try not to do that or try to document it at the very least before it gets done, if you can. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think leaving the scene is is probably one of the worst things you could do. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. looking at it strictly from a DOT perspective, that that gets you in a lot of trouble. Uh, that disqualifies you if you're a commercial driver and you leave the scene of an accident and you're convicted of that. That can disqualify you from operating a commercial motor vehicle going forward for a certain period of time. So pretty serious consequences. So don't do that. Um, all right, so we're running out of time here. I got a few uh, questions left. We've hit on a lot of uh, a lot of good information here. Um, let's see here. We've answered a lot of this. What about you? You know, we've talked about the various types of evidence that, in your view, is crucial that we preserve at the scene. What about back office? What about um, records or data that the motor carriers may have at their back office? What what should they be thinking about in terms of preserving that? Um. All things around uh, the compliance that they should have on file for their driver qualification files, uh, vehicle maintenance files related to the driver involved in the accident, the vehicle involved in the accident. Because uh, as soon as if it does pursue into litigation, I've seen uh, the procurement of information that comes from the plaintiff attorney that wants everything under the sun. Essentially, they want they want to know about the inquiries you made to uh, to the referrals before you hired the driver. They want to see the, the past drug and alcohol test. They want to see um, uh, proof of recent inspection on the truck that was involved in the accident. So all of the all of the compliance matters that you you strive to stay on top of, of, as, a, of a, as a motor carrier, that's uh, that's evidence that is likely going to be requested. Yeah, driver logs for sure. Um, you know, it, yeah. Depending on the seriousness of the accident, uh, you may very well, if you're the motor carrier, get a litigation hold letter from uh, opposing counsel in that case fairly soon after the accident. That's going to tell you exactly what they expect you to preserve, and then at that point, you have an obligation to hold that, or else you're going to be uh, potentially charged with some kind of a spoliation uh, charge in the context of that litigation. So, uh, Brendan any other thoughts on kind of back office stuff that you uh, always hope to see motor carriers keep in the context of these accidents? Yeah, I'm looking for inspection logs. Any any notes with regards to that and how the truck's maintained? Um, also, we touched on a little bit earlier, but these dash cameras and these fleet management systems and all of that, before you're ever in an accident, understand how it works and understand how to access that data. Um, you know, sometimes dash cameras aren't working uh, or it uploads to a cloud and they have no idea how to get it from a cloud or the video is gone after a certain amount of time and converted to still frames. Um, yeah, we were talking about that. I, I, I can't remember if it was before the show, but uh, in your experience, there, there are some that, that only hold the actual video data for a certain amount of time, a short amount of time, and then afterwards it converts it to, to stills that may not be as useful. Has that been your experience? In one particular case, yeah, it's it streamed to a cloud and they thought it was great, but it only saves that video for a week. And after that week, it converts every a few minutes to a still frame image uh, of the trip. So they had gotten to it a little over a week, lost the video, lost all that evidence, which would have been fantastic in that case. Um, so just understanding those systems in the back office to know how to get it, where to get it, what data is being tracked. Uh, if you've added a system to the truck in particular, and getting on that right away. 
Yeah, this is something we've harped on uh, in prior shows. We talk a lot about the data, the significant influx of data that motor carriers have coming at them nowadays uh, in what has historically been a pretty paper-driven industry. And uh, a lot of the fleets we work with just don't even realize what data is is coming in and what data um, they have, uh, you know, filtering into their systems. And so getting a, a handle on what data streams you have coming in and what you have access to is is a pretty fundamental thing that you need to do as a fleet early on. Uh, right now, you need to understand what data is coming in, what data you're keeping, how long you're keeping it, how to access it, all kind of being proactive, um, not only just for accidents, but also for, for DOT audits, uh, employment type claims. You know, a lot of those involve uh, working hours and, and having to get access to driver's hours of service logs. So just having a, a, a basic understanding of what data you have and how to access it is key in a lot of different areas. Uh, kind of want to wrap things up here, guys, with, uh, with um, uh, one last question, which is when, in your view, um, should carriers get legal counsel involved in, in the accidents? And maybe it's a question more for Jess, but, um, you know, carriers involved in an accident, when should they um, engage legal counsel or when do you all recommend they engage legal counsel to start helping out with that? Depending on the severity of the claim, I would say essentially immediately, which they'll, uh, you know, they're going to be working with the adjuster at the same time. But um, it really kind of depends on the accident at hand. But if if the if the other involved party has retained counsel and uh, and we haven't we haven't started making the efforts to build a defensible file when things escalate, it's uh, it's better to be proactive in that measure. All right, guys. Well, we're about out of time here. Really appreciate you joining me. It was a lot of uh, information packed into that short amount of time. A lot of great tips. Uh, I want to give you guys an opportunity to let people know where they can find you, how they can reach out. Uh, so, Jess, you want to kick things off there? Yeah. Uh, Painwise.com. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you can get a hold of me. You can Google me. You can find me easy enough. Brendan? Hey, I'm out in the Seattle office, but you can reach uh, me at arca a-r-c-c-a dot com or on linkedin um yeah there's several ways and anybody at our company can help you too if you find other people that are closer to your area yeah make sure you guys you take these guys up on on their offer reach out to them if you have any questions more in-depth questions then uh obviously we only had 30 minutes to get into the topic not nearly enough time to get into the nitty-gritty so feel free to reach out to them they're more than willing to to answer questions or point you in the right direction so thanks again guys so much for uh for being with me today really appreciate your insight on the topic so uh we'll we'll see you again soon hopefully all right, so that's going to wrap up the show today. I appreciate you joining us. Appreciate everyone who submitted comments. Uh, if you have any other questions, um, if you don't reach out to those guys directly, feel free to reach out to us over at trucksafe.com. Um, one thing I'll mention as we're wrapping things up here today, if you're not already subscribed to our newsletter, be sure to do so. You can go to trucksafe.com uh, and subscribe. We send out a, a periodic newsletter where we're highlighting all of the content that we're pushing out. Again, a lot of DOT compliance content, articles, in-depth articles, uh, free videos, that type of stuff. So again, check that out. Trucksafe.com. Also, um, 
be sure to check out our courses over at trucksafeacademy.com. We, uh, we offer courses that are devoted to uh, safety professionals. So our safety manager course, for example, is really aimed at going through the nuts and bolts of DOT compliance and what it means to, um, to effectively manage a DOT safety and compliance program. We walk through driver qualification, hours of service, vehicle maintenance, drug and alcohol testing, all of these types of topics, kind of looking at it from a, a regulatory perspective. And so check those out uh, if you're interested, trucksafeacademy.com. And then lastly, um, just be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, and uh, we, we post a lot of breaking news there, breaking industry news, a lot of, our again, our content. So, so be sure to follow us there. All right, that's going to wrap it up. Um, stay tuned for our next episode next month, trucksafelive.com for details. Thanks again to the sponsor of this season, Log Rock. Uh, and thanks again to, to our guest uh, for this show. So thanks, everyone, for watching. <laughs>